Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. We are the forgotten survivors of the sex industry. We are the spouses, partners, and exes of porn and or sex addicts. And together, we are the Butterfly Nation. Hi guys, I'm Allison. Hi, and I'm Sandy. Welcome. We are the Butterfly Nation. Today we're going to be talking about what is sex addiction. What is porn addiction? Are they two different things? Is it a disease? All of these kind of questions that kind of run around our heads that we don't really kind of understand. We're going to address those today and we're going to, we're going to give you some really good information from some different sources. And, uh, but first, Sandy, I wanted to kind of just let everyone know who we are. We're both ex-partners of sex and porn addicts. We have walked the walk. We know all of the feelings that you're going through right now, we have felt them. We have done the similar things as you. We, we, there's a lot of very similar reactions that we all tend to have. Um, and it's all normal, guys. It's all normal. It's all a normal reaction to trauma. But we are now both certified mindful habit coaches. Uh, the mindful habit is a system of recovery from porn and sex addiction. And both of us specialize in coaching partners and helping them find their own empowerment. I am with the butterfly habit. And Sandy, why don't you? Sure. I am with empowering counseling and also the empowered butterfly. That's right. So my website is butterflyhabit.com. And Sandy, you can give yours. Empoweringcounseling.ca. Beautiful. And, 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 and- just so you know, I, I've posted those um, on my website, those articles that we've talked about the last few weeks on our shows. I've put them on my, uh, my website now. So, Beautiful. Um, any that we talk about today, uh, I think I have posted there already too. Um, so I'm going to let make sure Allison has them as well uh, so she can load on hers. Yeah, yeah. So those will all be available on both of our websites. And I'm also, of course, on Instagram and Facebook. And you're on Facebook, Sandy. So we are findable. (laughs) We are are findable, for sure. Yes, we are. So today we're going to be talking about what is sex addiction. And I think we should open up with uh, some information Sandy brought um, about the three levels of sex addiction. So Sandy, why don't you start off with that? Absolutely. So this was taken out of the uh, book Mending a Shattered Heart by Stephanie Carnes, PhD, who is the daughter of Patrick Carnes, who was the first, uh, I, I don't want to say founder, but first to write books uh, about porn and sex addiction. And um, while there is some valuable information in, in Mr. Carn or Dr. Carnes' books, um, I'm not necessarily a proponent myself, my own opinion, just because of the co-addict um, references that are in there. However, yes, that's, that's big for me too, Sandy. The, um, he did have some really good points and some really good knowledge, but I think it's really important for all of us to remember when we're reading all of these resources, when we're reading about um, sex addiction, often the partner is thrown under the bus or mislabeled, and that re-traumatizes us, and I'm not okay with that, and I don't know about you, Sandy, but that is why I became a coach, because Absolutely. we are not co-addicts, and we are not codependent. Absolutely, 100 million percent, if that's Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I found I was re-victimized in, in yes. reading um, those. I found that I was, I felt blamed. I found, found completely ended. I had to stop reading because I was getting more and more upset and I was traumatized even more uh, yes. from reading. So I, I've got a couple of books here that I think are, are valuable. Um, the first one I read was by Stephanie Carnes here, Mending a Shattered Heart. And while there is some reference to the coatic in it, there was just a lot of great information uh, for it. But, and one of them that it helped me to understand was those levels of addiction. So level one, I'm just going to go with the behaviors rather than uh, because there's cultural standards, there's legal consequences, risk, there's victim, there's public opinion of addiction. So I'm just going to go with the behavior. Um, and please, please excuse uh, some of these because they may be triggering to some people. Um, so just bear in mind, some of these descriptions may be triggering uh, or may, you may find them offensive. Level one, that's masturbation compulsive relationships, pornography, prostitution, and anonymous sex. Level two 
is exhibitionism, voyeurism, indecent phone calls, and indecent liberties. So indecent liberties could be even joking with with women. Uh, let's say it's the, the the man has a sex addiction. It's joking with women with a very deep um, sexual connotation, if you will, that while the, the, the recipient may kind of chuckle it off, may actually find it offensive. Um, and, and that's called indecent liberties. I think we've okay. all experienced that in our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. And know that there are some men, because of cultural um, acceptance, if you will, that, that men are more sexual, that men um, joke about sex more often, think about it more often than women do, that, that these jokes are okay. And, and if you're okay with them, hey, it's okay. But it also doesn't mean that the man, because he, he you know, shares sexual jokes, um, with women that he actually has a sex addiction. Other That's right. That go, other things that go along with it. Okay. Level three sex addiction is the child molestation, incest, and rape. And, and know that, uh, because when we hear the term sex addiction, I don't know about anyone else, but I know my mind went to, oh my goodness, what does that mean? Because, you know, um, does this mean he could be a pedophile? Uh, does this mean he's into child porn? And know that that is not it. There are three different levels, and, and they're very distinct. So note that um, while prostitution, of course, is illegal, the others, other things in level one are not illegal. Uh, well, unless, they... unless, unless it's sexual harassment in the workplace, um, which is sexual joking, sharing of emails, those kinds of things. But level two is the exhibitionism, the voyeurism, um, those, and then, of course, level three with the child molestation, et cetera. Those are all illegal practices and high risk and very, very detrimental. Not saying level one is not detrimental. It is. Well, level but... one, I think, is, is kind of um, a little bit... <clears throat> Well, okay, we have to we have to always think of the porn industry itself too. So if you're watching pornography, um, yeah. it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're watching it. It could be I'm not going to mention any names, but some popular websites that everybody knows because they have TV advertisements, or it could be whatever. You never know who you're looking at, so you could actually be wa- you are actually most likely watching sex trafficking, uh, rape, all of those kinds of things are going on all the time in the porn world, and you can't tell when you're watching. So, I we're gonna we're gonna cover that in a different show for sure because it's yes. really important yes. for all of us to understand what's really going on there. But that's also another illegal part. And I also I'm I'm a little bit curious what your thoughts are, Sandy. So I'm I'm listening to these three levels, and none of them include. Um, I would consider one level uh, PIMO, which is porn, masturbation, and orgasm without going uh, and having physical contact with anyone else. That is a definite level of sex addiction. And I, I don't want that to be disregarded because it is, in fact, an addiction. Well, we'll talk about that word in a minute. But right. what do you think of that? Okay, absolutely. And it's still level one. Just because I named masturbation, compulsive relationships, pornography, prostitution, anonymous sex, it doesn't mean that someone with a porn and or sex addiction has all of these things in every category. Right. Okay. They may Mm -hmm. have just um, uh, pornography or porn addiction. Or just prostitutions. Or just prostitution. Absolutely. No, um, or anonymous sex. You know, the one night stands, it's uh, picking someone up in a bar and you really don't even know who, you, who you're with. Um, it, those can constitute definitely as sex addiction. So even if it is just pornography, it is still a sex addiction. Right. Okay. And we'll get right. into what that entails when it is um, an, an addiction, if you will. Right. Okay. So... So the three different levels that you're talking about, Sandy, what would you think, um, maybe you could explain a little bit more the differences between the two and why they are three distinct levels rather than just one kind of blanket statement. What makes them different other than, or unless it's just the illegal or risk levels? 
Well, that's that's a big part of it. So in, in the cultural standards, level two, so which is the exhibitionism, voyeurism, or, or et cetera, none of these behaviors are, are acceptable. So in level one, cultural standards, depending on behavior, activities are seen as acceptable or tolerable. Some specific behaviors, such as prostitution and homosexuality, are sources of controversy. Wait. But that, Homosexuality? Yes, ab- yes, absolutely. <laughs> bear in mind, bear in mind, because I know that that's a, a point for both of us, actually. Know that this book is written in 2011. Okay? So I just want to go there. It's only, it's not that old. Bear in mind, in some cultures, homosexuality is, an, is seen as um, undesirable behavior. Okay. Where, so can right? I just can I just say, Sandy, I want to be very clear on my um, views on that. Um, homosexuality, in my opinion, is completely natural. You're born that way, and yep. no judgment at all because you're just born that way, and it doesn't affect Absolutely. anyone else. And that's my opinion. So I want to yep, make mine too. clear. Yeah, awesome. So yeah, Sandy and I, yep. we both think that. So sometimes when we're when we're referring to different reference materials. We can't control, yeah. of course, what other people write <laughs> or think. So we're going to yeah. be talking, and that will most likely come up once in a while. But but we should be clear on our own views um, because we, yeah, we I think both feel the same way about that. It's very, it's mm-hmm. just natural. So right. carry on. <laughs> so, so again, it goes to the, you know, legal consequences or risk. So level one, there is a lower legal consequence or risk. You may be picked up as uh, John. You may, um, you know, it, it's minimal risk for the addict, if you will. Right. The, and whereas uh, level two, behaviors are regarded as nu- uh, nuisance offenses. Risks involved, um, there may be some jail time, shorter jail time. We're at level three, which is all having to do with child molestation and incest and rape. Um, there's extreme legal consequences. In both level two and level three, there is always a victim. I'm going to argue very strongly that well in this book, it says these behaviors for level one are perceived as victimless crimes. It says, however, victimization and exploitation are often components. I'm going to argue very, very strongly, and there's much research to back my argument and that you can find on Fight the New Drug, is that these behaviors are not without a victim. Even I agree. Even if it seems that you may find a person with a sex addiction may find a partner, um, let's say the sex addiction quite often um, is about control, and so they find a partner who is submissive. The submissive partner most often is likely a survivor of childhood sexual abuse has had incest or rape in their background and believes that the only way that um, they can have, get attention or what their own work is is that they have to use their body. Um, and, and more often than not, um, studies have shown that sex addiction um, is male-dominated, 80, 80% to 20% women. Whereas in the submissive um, uh, uh, prostitution or submissive women who, uh, you know, strip clubs, whatever the case may be, it's very high that it's 80-20 for the women who are the submissive and and who are victimized in this. Right. But also know that as partners, we are victims. Absolutely, Sandy. We are victims. We are absolute victims. And luckily, we have the power within ourselves to turn into survivors, which you and I both have. And we want all of you guys to to as well, because you all have that ability within you. I want to kind of touch on something you were mentioning about partners that they're usually, you said they were um, often submissive, etc. Um, I'm I didn't fit into any of the categories that you um, and I'm not I'm not uh, what, just to clarify, not necessarily the partners are submissive. I know in my case that was true, but not necessarily the partners. It's the uh, it's the other people who um, these are outside uh, anonymous sex or outside relationships that the sex oh, addict. Okay, rather than the partners, it's um, that. Uh, so a sex addict typically 
have a higher rate of, of needing to be in control. That's a, a component of sex addiction. They have to have it's their, their control. And in order to have that control, they, they may like their partners. Uh, but the you, you, when you're saying out. partners, you don't mean us. No, no, you no, mean no. I don't acting mean out partners. Uh, acting out partners. Yes, I need to clarify that. I'm very, very sorry because that's very confusing. The people that they act out with. There we go. Bingo. Are submissive. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, yeah that, that that there's not a lot. There's a lot of um, things within this kind of, you know, circle that don't have good names for them yet. You know what I mean? There, there's yeah. a lot of underdeveloped stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, even just I know that it's a struggle. Partners of porn and sex addiction or porn and sex addicts instead of just there, there's not like a term for us yet. So it can get kind of confusing when we start talking because um, a lot of, a lot of terms like partner, I mean, we just saw two completely different meanings of partner, right? So there's, there's not really anything defined in the industry yet. And in the kind of, in this world, however, we will be sure to clarify whenever, whenever we stumble across something like that. So thank you so much for clarifying that, Sandy. (laughs) We're all good. Yep. <laughs> so uh, another, I'm just going to describe what uh, this is a, a Herkoff um, article that, uh, and it's loaded on my website, so you can have a look at this article. Um, and I didn't put the, it's on my website, the date of it, so I apologize for that. This, uh, it, it says, what is, a sec- what is sexual addiction? So sexual addiction is best described as a progressive intimacy disorder characterized by compulsive sexual thoughts and acts. Like all addictions, its negative impact on the addict and on family members increases as the disorder progresses. Over time, the addict usually has to intensify the addictive behavior to achieve the same result. For some sex addicts, behavior does not progress beyond compulsive masturbation or the extensive use of pornography or phone or computer sex services. For others, addiction can involve illegal activities such as exhibitionism, voyeurism, obscene phone calls, child molestation, or rape. Um, But know that... You know, I, I know in my personal case, um, that was certainly true. The, the disorder progressed. It went from porn addiction for several, several years. Um, there had been excessive acting out um, in early life well before me in the relationship, uh, well before our marriage. And, but there was extensive porn, but I had no idea that this was even a thing. Right. And, no, and that either. porn, so but that porn ended up having to be more severe and more severe, and there was fetishes involved in that, and more severe. And then it was acting, trying to act that out with me, which I hated, hated every single second of it. Um, and then even though I had been agreeing at times, there, as soon as as soon as high speed internet was a thing in our house. Um, went immediately to online relationships, online relationships. Right. Okay, Sandy. Um, Let's get, I just want to kind of pop in here for a second and let everyone know that they can call us anytime during this live broadcast. So I'm just going to give you guys my number or our number, I should say. Uh, Feel free to call us. It's 646-787-8580. That's 646 787-8580. Feel free to call in anytime, ask us questions, um, any comments you have. Well, yeah, we, you are more than welcome here at all times. You can feel free to use a different name, um, et cetera, because we understand your need for privacy. So I just wanted to pop that in there, Sandy. So absolutely. You were talking about escalation. So what about, what if we start, um, before we start talking about escalation, why I, there were a few things that I wanted to point out that seem to be very, very, very common in the childhoods of people who end up um, as porn and or sex addicts. And there's, there's, nobody is going to fit all of them. Well, I guess actually some would fit into all of them, but they're, they're just very common, okay? So one of the common things is being sexually abused as a child. That's one 
one thing that is quite common. Another common thing is being raised in a strictly religious household. That's also very common. So regardless of the religion itself, just being brought up in a place where sex is considered a sin or masturbation is considered a sin or however, however that is um, looked upon in any particular religion, that does seem to be a factor. And one, one, other, uh, one thing that is also very common is moving around a lot, never having a kind of stable home. So maybe the person was raised in, as an army brat. Um, or maybe the person's uh, parents, you know, had to keep moving for work, et cetera. But kind of a lack of stability and a lack of roots is also very common. I want to add to that um, any childhood trauma actually can trigger uh, this addiction, any childhood trauma. So it doesn't have to be sexual abuse. Uh, it could be emotional abuse. It could be the belief of abandonment. And that actually can be death of a parent, Real, like, bad, you know, uh, sickness or illness right. of, of a parent, um, that they are no longer to parent in the way they have always parented. Um, and, and that's traumatic. And, and then possibly death of, uh, of a parent or loss. Um, whether that's a parent, you know, separation and one parent moving away um, and, and that so they, they don't have as much interaction with that parent any longer, that can also uh, be a cause. So any really childhood trauma um, can be a, as a result. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, in addition to that, it's, it's psychological abuse or neglect or emotional yeah. abuse. And that can come from the parents or it can come from um, the siblings. I mean, there's a whole kind of big, big kind of gamut of, of possibilities here. But I think that the point is that in most cases, there is some sort of big trauma. There is a lack of roots and there's some sort of neglect going on. Because what does porn do? Porn. Well, how, why do they? Why do people use porn? It's a, it's a, it's a method to numb, cope, and escape. Before you have the ability, before you have the emotional maturity to be able to kind of deal with the trauma that you're facing, which is no fault of your own, you find this kind of magical thing that takes you away from everything, and you don't have to think about anything, and you don't have to be anywhere or do anything that you don't want to you get to be whoever you want and and it's it's like a drug it it acts on the brain the same way a drug does Mm -hmm. and to add to that and it and it can be something that was innocuous at first that was kind of introduced so um there could have been something in a movie that the child or adolescent watched or saw. There could be something uh, they found a magazine from, you know, an older brother's or a parent's, you know, magazine that um, maybe a Playboy or something like that, uh, that was kind of the, the interest start. And it just like made, you know, it, it, there was a feel-good feeling. Uh, there was an escapism in there. It numbed the feelings of abandonment or whatever the case may be, and it just grows from there. Absolutely. And and I want to point out, too, that in most cases, when, the, when a person is first exposed to pornography, they're so young, they don't know. They don't know that it's bad or, well, they don't know how bad it is. They don't, they don't know. I mean, nobody is out there knowing the science of porn and what it's going to do to their brains and what it's going to, how it's going to affect their relationships, et cetera. And and quite honestly, just, uh, just even look at our society today and how acceptable um, accepted porn is for, uh, you know, for people to watch or couples to watch. Um, Not by me, believe me. uh, Or me. I know the high dangers and, and of, and I believe it was Feed the White Wolf, wolf um, and also uh, Fight the New Drug, actually, statistically, not around 97% of the women in pornography are actually human trafficked. Um, That's correct. And from the other 3%, 
there's only a very, very like 0.001 actually wanted to be there, but, uh, or, or thought, well, I can do this. It's going to earn me, you know, you know, some money and, um, you know, can continue on, but usually there is bribery, there's drugs involved, there are threats involved, and it goes from a you know modeling to uh, to being naked to be well. You have to do this next because now I have pictures of you. Yeah, and you know what? That is going to be a whole show because that whole industry is is absolutely treacherous, and there's so much for us to cover on that. And again, we 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 want to make um, one of our points here is to bring awareness to everything around porn and the sex industry. I'm going to add to this is is that typical sex addicts have high shame and remorse around their behavior, feelings of despair. And they, and as I mentioned, they commonly have a history of trauma and while they may seek treatment because they are so full of shame, if that, if that background in trauma or the shame is not addressed and the difference between shame and guilt I'm just going to explain that shame is this belief that I am a a bad person and I did bad or I do bad things. Guilt is that I'm a good person and I've done some things I'm not so proud of. That's the difference between the two. That's a big difference. Thank you, Sandy, for kind of clarifying that. That is a big difference. So um, this is kind of, this is, this is where it kind of gets into a little bit of a gray area. Because we've talked about, you know, what kind of usually starts it. We've talked about the escalation a little bit. We should talk about that a little bit more. But at some point, we're going to have to address the question, is this a disease? I do not believe that this is a disease. Because to me, a disease is something that comes from outside of you, well, inside of you. Um, A disease is something that can be helped sometimes with medication. <laughs> it's, it's a medical thing. It's not a choice. It's, you don't choose to have cancer. You don't make decisions in your life that are going to give you diabetes on purpose. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Sandy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sex addiction, porn addiction, addiction, period is a habit. It begins with choice. It begins with conscious thought. It begins and continues with choice. That's right. And choice may go to the subconscious level rather than conscious, but so does your morning routine. Your morning routine is an addiction. You're not, not a bad addiction, but it still is. When you get up in the morning, especially if you have to go to work or whatever, you get up and you go and you do the same things in the same order and you don't even think about it. You can, do, you can still be half asleep and be doing them. And the reason you can do them is because it's created pathways in your brain of this is what habit. you do. It's the yeah. habit. Exactly. It's the science of habit. It's the, absolutely. It's the science of habit. And that's how addiction works. So when we... When we um, when we have something that we gravitate to, it's a, it's a coping technique. Addiction starts and, and, and is maintained because it becomes an ingrained coping skill. Um, and then we start telling ourselves, you know, we're in, like we go in denial. Well, it's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting me. Nobody else, if whatever, nobody else knows. Um, I can do this or I deserve it. Or I deserve it, yeah. I deserve it. Whatever we want to, t- you know, tell ourselves. It is an ingrained habit, and in order to break a habit, we have to make a new one because mo- many porn and sex addicts believe, I can stop this anytime. I can just stop it anytime. It's, and here's the thing. Quite often, they need help to stop it. That's right. They, that's, need to, they need the tools because without, yeah. what, you can't build a whole house with just a hammer and nails. Right. You need a whole you need a whole set of tools to do it properly, right? That's kind of how I look at that. Um, and I wanted to kind of briefly kind of go into the disease model and what I, there are some things I really don't like about the disease model, Sandy. The disease model I'm gonna I should say first the disease model is a treatment model for porn and sex addiction. It's the oldest one. It's uh, it's the one that kind of started out by replicating. The, the work for Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
The problem with the disease model, Sandy, to me, is that it leaves the addict completely powerless. They, it's a victim mentality. It is, uh, you know, it's not my fault. It's the disease. It's, it takes away all of their power. Every person has the power of choice. And that robs those people of the power of choice. And it also tells them that we are co-addicts, which we are absolutely right. not. Just to add to that, Allison, the very first step, because that's what you're talking about, is 12-step models. Right. And, um, and and like you, I am not a proponent of 12-step. And just know, and anyone can Google this, you know, the efficacy of 12-step, of especially for alcoholics, um, because there isn't a lot of research done on the 12-step for sex addiction, um, it's only 8 to 24%. Yeah. So think about that. Think about that. For any disease, would you not like to have a treatment plan that gives you more of a higher percentage of, of success? In the 12 step, the very first step is you are powerless over the disease, whatever that disease is. You are powerless over the disease. I say, excuse my language, F that. I'll say it, fuck that. <laughs> as soon as you know that that's what it is, as soon as you feel that shame and guilt that your body is telling you it's wrong, when you feel that shame and guilt, it is wrong, and you know it. You know it, and you still Absolutely. make a choice every single time to continue by giving you, yourself those excuses. So you're allowing your choices to take your power. Exactly. And power is the key. I think one of the biggest keys in recovery, because the um, the addict tends to their self-loathing in in every case, I would say that I've ever heard of. There is a lot of self-loathing. There's a lot of self-hate, self-deprecation is a huge part of it. And that's, that comes from the shame and guilt that Sandy was talking about before. But to tell them, Oh, well, you know what? It's not your fault. It's it's the disease. It's not you. That just shoves them further down into a state of powerlessness. What we need to do is bring their self-empowerment up, boost them, and allow them to see they do have control over this. They do have the power to change their lives. They do have the power to change their habits. And we are not co-addicts. I'm going to say that again. I want to talk about that for a second. From that sure. model, Sandy. Sure. Yep. So in that, I, I'm going to say, I at the very beginning of Discovery, maybe within the first like month, I'm, my timelines get a little bit shaky uh, because of all the trauma that was happening. But at one point, I reached out to Sexaholics Anonymous, and I emailed them, and I said, please, is there anything I can say to get him to see that he needs help? Please, please tell me. Um, just is there, like, is there like a video or something that I can just say that will make him want help? And they didn't even, they responded quite quickly and they didn't actually address his addiction. They told me that I needed help for my addiction and that my addiction is very, is what I should be focusing on and that I need to start going to meetings. I nearly threw my computer out of my house through the window. I nearly, I was so mad because you know what, Sandy, it's just false. We are not addicted to their addiction. We are not addicted to anything like that. We are safety-seeking. We are safety-seeking. Safety is a basic human need, and we don't feel safe when all of a sudden the rug has been ripped out from under us when we didn't even see it coming out of left field. All of a sudden, everything was a lie. Everything is different. You don't know who you're married to. All of this kind of stuff, you're scrambling for safety. That is not addiction. Do you agree with that, Sandy? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So that's another big problem with me with the 12-step and the uh, disease models is the position that the partner is put in, once again, thrown under the bus and re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. In, in, um, in the book by Paula Hall, and, and this book was my, uh, for me, along with The Mindful Habit, this book was my lifeline, became my, oh my God, it was like they're in my head. She's in my head. 
by Paula Hall. It's called Sex Addiction, The Partner's Perspective, a comprehensive guide to understanding and surviving sex addiction for partners and those who want to help them. The very first chapter, this is, this is what I highlighted, and this is what just spoke to me that this was the book for me. It says, most partners do not discover their partner is a sex addict. What they discover is that their partner has been unfaithful or maybe that's unfaithful watching porn, whatever the case may be. More often than not, partners gradually drag out or unravel the painful reality that the person they most trusted in their life has betrayed them, not once, but repeatedly. The word sex addiction may not enter the vocabulary for many weeks, months, or even years after behaviors have been discovered. And when it is out there on the table, the first reaction of many partners is, really? What is it? And so it's still, whether it's an addiction, and again, I prefer to call it an affliction rather than it's a habit, um, is that how can we be a co-addict of something we knew nothing about? Absolutely. And even after discovery, when we do know about it, again, we're seeking safety. We're looking for the truth. We don't, we, our whole lives are, have been an illusion with our, with our, um, with our husband or boyfriend or what have you. So we are seeking safety there after we find out after discovery and before discovery, like you said, we didn't even know it was happening. So how could we possibly be a co-addict? How could we possibly, um, that's just what, there's so many different aspects of this too, Sandy. Um, I'm going to kind of ask you a question, Sandy. I'm going to put you on the spot, and I feel like you're going to have an amazing answer. Sandy, is it ever the partner's fault? Never. Sorry. Never. (laughs) Never, ever, ever, ever is it the partner's fault. Keep in mind the high, high percentage high percentage in the 90s, and I, I wish I had that right in front of me. Go to Feed the White Wolf, you'll see those, those things, or Fight the New Drug. It starts well before the relationship. It starts in adolescence. The average age is 12. 12. How? How could it be? It's 8 to 12. Yeah. 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 It's, so how could it be the partner's fault? How? I do not understand where that. They didn't that even know we existed. Absolutely, my in my case, it was it was buried. The fetish was buried for fifteen years. Fifteen years of our of our um, thirty four years together. Fifteen years before I even knew there was a fetish, and I didn't know there was anything after that. I didn't know there was anything after that. And why would you know? Right. I, For me, yeah. I, I didn't know that there was anything until 13 years in. I didn't know that he watched porn. I thought he was right. a feminist. So mm-hmm. all of these things, there's yeah. not. So here's and it, it, you know what I mean? At the beginning, Sandy, I thought it was my fault. I thought I wasn't yeah. a good enough white. I yeah. gained too much weight. Yeah. I had um, not paid enough attention to him. But at the end of the day, these were his choices that he he carried on with something that he had been doing since he was a very little boy before he even knew that I was on the earth. These were all his choices. And I asked one day, um, why did you marry me? Knowing this, like, didn't you think that this would hurt me? And he said, I thought I could manage it. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit now about the double life. My, my partner or my ex-partner did the same. He thought that what I didn't know wouldn't hurt me. And yet yes. we had no intimacy in our relationship and hadn't for several years. And I actually had been in marriage counseling for over about two and a half years before I found out. And um, none of this ever came in, nor did I ever believe it, this was a thing. Never no, me believed. Neither. I trusted him with every single thing in me. Every single me too. cell in me. And um, so there's nothing that you could have done, Sandy, that would have started it because it started before you. I want to I want to just read a couple of paragraphs here from something uh, because this really is fitting. Okay, Allison, if that's okay. Mm, yeah. This is loving a sex addict. 
While sex addicts face many serious challenges in their effort to get sober, their spouses and partners likely have it even harder. When infidelity occurs, be it in person, via pornography, or an online encounter, many betrayed partners mentally review and call into question everything they thought they knew about their relationship, looking back to try to figure out what they missed and what went wrong. For people who believed that they were in a monogamous partnership, the revelation that they have been cheated on and lied to on a vast scale may prompt them to wonder what, if anything, is true about that relationship. And they began to wonder if it is possible to reestablish the kind of trust with and in their, their significant other that is needed if they are to continue building a life together. Oftentimes, betrayed partners began to question their own behavior as they look back on their relationship. Just as someone who has experienced the sudden death of a close friend or parent may wonder whether he or she could have done more to enrich the relationship with that individual. Partners of sex addicts often feel remorse when they consider how they might have acted in the past. It's all too common to think, somehow if I had just done it differently, he wouldn't have been with those other women. Or if I were younger or more attractive or made more money, she wouldn't have done this. Betrayed spouses may also begin to examine feelings and misgivings they previously pushed aside in order to justify the behavior of the sex addict. All of this self-appraisal is a normal and healthy way for betrayed partners to grieve the loss of what they thought the relationship to be. This really speaks to, and I think it speaks to you as well, Allison, it really speaks to my experience and the experience Mm, of many, many others. And I know I had to examine, and, and now what I know were our red flags or were red flags, I didn't believe them to be red flags, and I, and, and I didn't, wasn't that I ignored them or denied them, it was that I trusted him. Mm-hmm. And it was just that belief that he would never, ever do anything like this, because in one hand, he was this wonderful, wonderful partner or husband, and, you know, we placed him on a pedestal that he was this wonderful guy who would do anything for anyone. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's what I was kind of alluding to before, the double life. Yes. The double life. The double life is something that these, peop- these, um, these guys, I'm going to say, you know what, I talk in generalities. It's, it, it's usually men. It's also women. Men. Yeah, it's 80% men. And that's my own experience. So I keep saying he and guys and etc. But please know that there are also women who are sex addicts. And there are men who are married to female sex addicts. Right? So this goes, this goes in that way as well. But um, in general, sex addicts start having to live two lives. I'm going to take one example I'm going to give you. Okay, so there is a little boy and he finds porn. Um, he has been experiencing some abuse, some psychological abuse, etc. He finds his dad's stash of porn, which is like a candy store for him. It's like it, he, it's, it has the same effect on the brain as crack. Okay, so he, he opens this and oh my goodness, it is, it is wow, wow, wow. All these, all these neurons are firing and dopamine is flooding and all this stuff is happening in the brain. But he's, he's also really religious, right? So he knows that that's bad. He's not allowed to do that. So right at that very moment when he decides as a child through no fault of his own, I'm going to stress again that he's going to go back and do that. He's way too young to have the understanding of even what this even is, what even sex is, but he is going to go back and he's going to start having to hide his behaviors to maintain his good church going boy image. That's where it starts. So we start there. Now, by the time we come into their lives, they have mastered this skill beyond. I mean, it's like watching a movie. I mean, they're that good at it. They have honed these skills of hiding, of manipulation, beyond anything that I think we could even imagine. They're so good at it. They have developed two identities. And I don't mean they have split personalities. This is not a medical diagnosis. I'm saying they live in a way where they can have their one image, which Sandy was just talking about, the great, you know, giver, the the volunteer, the whatever. And on the other side, they have a very dark, dark dark, secret part of themselves. Mm -hmm. 
what I have found um, through this work is that they know how to hide things in that dark world. They know how to, um, on the computer, they know how to hide things, change things. So if you're looking, you, you may not find it. The likelihood is you won't find it. I never found so it. Well, no, it's, uh, I, I found things. I did find things, but I was relentless in my finding. And that was only the first few days until the laptop and phone were smashed by him. Um, So I didn't find anything. uh, Just, um, I I won't go into that. Anyway, (laughs) things things were hidden very, very well. Um, uh, Did he screw it just like any, I want to say, criminal who screws up every, every so often? Um, they leave a trace. There's things that are a trace. I ended up being a very, very good investigator. Uh, but then I had to stop. I just had to stop because what did I need to know more? I didn't need to know more of it. It was just her harming me. Right. That's just, right. And, and, um, and I didn't, I, I didn't want any more of those details. I got enough. I got enough, enough that was and devastating. I was- Absolutely. And I was, I'm, I was in a similar situation, although I never found anything. I tried. Oh, wow. Did I try? I figured out how to find the history on, um, on incognito mode, but it would only give me like, you know, the last 20 moves or whatever. I mean, it was just, I was just, I was doing all of that stuff when I, when I did, I had this kind of light bulb moment. I already knew what he had told me, what had come from his own mouth. And you know what? that was enough for me. I didn't need to know anymore for, for some time. I wanted to know everything. Now looking back, I'm really, really glad that I didn't ever find out everything. I don't need to know it because it would have just hurt me more and given me more triggers and given me more to work through for myself to get to the point where I am today. So yeah, Sandy, thank you very much. Um, that, that, is a really, really good point because we do tend to go through a natural phase again in mm-hmm. safety seeking. Mm-hmm. We're trying to find the answers because we're so right. confused, right. but sometimes the answers we have are all that we need. And, mm-hmm. and once you ladies, once you see something, once you find something, I want you to understand you cannot unsee it. You cannot unknow it. You can't you unhear can't. it. No. So it is there. So when you're, when, when you're doing your, um, when you're looking, when you're investigating, remember that for yourself, that you may find things that are never going to leave your world until you do a lot of work to get them out. And, and know that everything that you do see or hear or find is toxic. It's toxic to your mental health. It's toxic to your physical health. It's toxic. Um, if if it if it is enough for you to know that this exists, that this is a thing, then it's better to work on the positive of for yourself, your strength building for you, uh, your own empowerment. Absolutely, Sandy. That is that is the key. You know what? You know what? Through, with my journey through here, the most incredibly big piece of the puzzle for my own journey was rediscovering my own value and empowering myself to act accordingly based on my value. And I think that's so important for all partners because I believe from my own experience and from knowing so many partners, I believe that we lose the awareness of our own value. We aren't worth it. We aren't worth having our needs met. And as you work through your own um, history, what's going on right now, um, that's a huge part of both of our coaching uh, coaching programs is rediscovering your own value. Because once you know your own value and embrace your own value, the power is all yours. The power of choice is all yours. You do not have to accept behaviors that you are not okay with. Mm-hmm. You do not have to stay if you do not feel safe. Right. On the other hand, you are empowered to know the symptoms and signs of real recovery to look for. And you're going to be able to stay with your partner if they choose 
to truly recover, which is possible. So it's all about understanding your value, your needs. You do matter. You matter so much. And I don't want any of you to forget that you matter. Your values matter. Your pain matters. Your perspective matters. What you want matters. What's okay with you and not okay with you matters. Absolutely matters. You matter. You matter. You matter for you. You matter for those that love you. You matter for those around you, whether that's personal relationships, whether that's children, whether that's colleagues, whether that's your friends, your family. You matter, and it's time to power self. There is, uh, there's another article here or another part from Paula Hall um, that talks about all this that we've just, we've just discussed, Allison. Um, but again, we, we still have about nine minutes or so left if anyone wants to call in, um, to call in and the phone number again is 646-787-8580. I'll say that again, 646-787-8580. And we would love to hear from you. Uh, it's very, very important that we get your perspective and, and what this, is like for you. Uh, in the meantime, while we're waiting, uh, I just want to, to read, it says, traditionally, most partners of sex addicts have been treated as codependents. This is a study that Hall was quoted in. The presumption is that the partner knew at some level what was going on and was enabling it, which is frankly an insult. Totally. The reality, with the reality from most partners I see is that they experience phenomenal shock which is absolute. The damage to self-esteem, she continues, isn't just about sexualized behavior, such as visits to prostitutes that partners never knew about. It's the fact that they lived with someone so, for so long and had no idea. These guys, and it is mostly guys, as we've talked about, are on the whole loving husbands, yet they did this right under your nose, leaving you unable to trust your partner or even your own judgment. And it's no wonder... Many partners suffer trauma, which can lead to depression, anxiety, and panic attacks, rage, and utter disassociation. This is where that self-care comes in, what Allison was talking about in the empowering self. It's vital, vital for you, partners, vital for you to look after yourself, to put yourself as a priority maybe for the first time in your life to do those things that bring you joy, whether that's soaking in the tub, going for a walk, whatever that looks like. Absolutely. And I know that, Sandy, um, one of the things that I was I was really struggling with uh, at the beginning and during discovery was I wasn't focusing on myself. I was focusing on how how do I convince him to get help? How can I how can I make him want help? And what does it take to really recover? And I think that it's important that we touch on those two things. Because first of all, unfortunately, I hate to break this to everybody because I know I asked so many different professionals. I Googled so many different things. There is nothing that you can do that will make your partner want help. It has to come from them. It has to come from them. It has to come from them. And there's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do. The only thing that I've ever heard of that can work sometimes and not every time is to leave them. I was told that and I refused to do it. I would not leave him. I ended up leaving him in the end, but at the time I would not leave him because I just wanted him to love me enough. But that's not what it's about. It's not about how much they love you. It has to be for themselves. Yes. I, I'm going to, uh, and Allison, that was the same. I, um, I stayed with my partner for 10 and a half months. Um, he went into treatment at first, um, saying that he wanted to recover. He wanted to um, get better. He wanted to get back into our marriage and our relationship and work on us. And after a few months, that became quite known that that wasn't what he wanted and he was struggling. Um, And he started to blame me 
uh, for issues in the relationship. And yet we were, like I said, in marriage counseling for two and a half years. And not one of those things that he started to blame me for uh, was ever mentioned in during that time. And so I know he was grasping at straws in order to try to, in his own mind, place blame rather than taking the blame. Because that Absolutely. shame is so so great. I also believe that he, uh, and strongly believe, um, and I have some proof of that, that he has someone else. And it's because that person doesn't likely know of, of his background. Before we end, Allison, I know you wanted to say something, but just before we end, there is a, there's a, some questions here about, is my partner a sex addict? And if, it, if it's okay, Allison, can I quickly read these? Yeah, of course. Number one, does your sexual behavior have a negative impact in other areas of your life, such as relationships, work, finances, health, and professional status? So these are questions for the sex addict. Does your sexual behavior contradict your personal values and potentially limit your goals in life? Three, have you tried to limit your sexual behavior or stop it altogether but failed? Four, are you more tempted to engage in sexual behavior when you're experiencing difficult feelings such as stress, anxiety, anger, depression, or sadness? Five, are, your secret, are you secretive about your sexual behaviors and fearful of being discovered? Six, do you feel dependent on your sexual behavior and struggle to feel fulfillment with any alternative? Seven, have you noticed that you need more and more stimuli or risk in order to achieve the same level of arousal and excitement? Eight, do you find yourself struggling to concentrate in other areas of your life because of thoughts and feelings about your sexual behavior? Nine, have you ever thought that there might be more you could do with your life if you weren't so driven by your sexual pursuits? Ten, do you feel if your sexual behavior is out of your control? Eleven, do you currently or have you in the past struggled with any other addictions, compulsive behaviors, or eating disorders such as drug or alcohol addiction, compulsive gambling, gaming, work or exercise, or collecting, or food addiction? Twelve, has anyone in your family currently or in the past struggled with any addiction, compulsive behaviors, or eating disorders such as those listed above? I just wanted to say this is, again, from the the book by Paula Hall, Sexual Addiction, The Partner's Perspective. So those 12 questions were in that book. Um, And I would would strongly recommend picking up the book. I found it phenomenal and very helpful. Great. Thank you, Sandy. You know, those are those are some great questions that she asks. And um, just because we are on this topic today, there's two other things that I'd like to cover before we end and we have under three minutes. So I want to um, cover what it really takes to recover for the addict. And I also wanted to just kind of get in there and let everyone know that sex addiction is not about sex. Sex addiction is not about sex. I know that's the weirdest thing to ever, it doesn't even make sense logically, but it's not about sex. It's about what is it about, numbing, It's about numbing, coping, and escaping from trauma and from feelings of self-hatred, self-loathe, self-loathing, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's also about the, the risk involved, and it's about the high. Just like Absolutely. the dopamine rise in any addiction, it's the dopamine rise where the shame and guilt come in is when the dopamine drops. And it's about power because about when power. they're using the porn or doing whatever other acting out that they, that they are doing, they are so powerful because they get to have be this little kid with this secret that nobody else knows and ha, 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 I get to do whatever I want. And no intimacy and no emotion involved. That's right. None. Zero. Zilch. That's not even in the equation. So it's absolutely not about sex. It's about the other things that we just talked about and some other stuff as well. And I wanted just to kind of talk about briefly what it takes to really recover. So the first thing it takes to really recover from porn and sex addiction is a very, very strong desire to recover from porn and sex addiction. And that can only come from the addict himself. That can only come from them. It cannot come from outside. It has to come from them. And then they have to put in the effort and stick with whatever uh, recovery program they're doing, which we recommend the mindful habit. I'm going to add, this is true, too, for the partner. In order to recover from these traumas, it's very, very important that you get yourself in a recovery program or work with a therapist or a coach uh, like Allison or myself. myself. Um, Because we're using the mindful habit system, well-developed 
for porn and sex addiction, we, uh, we have taken the other stream of helping partners and ex-partners. Absolutely. And you know what, Sandy, I think it's really important. I'm the biggest piece of advice I'm going to give you all for not only for you, for your own treatment and recovery, whatever word you want to use, but for the addict is make sure it's someone who's been there. Make sure it's someone who has lived that life for both. Okay. Because nobody's going to understand this from a book. We're about to wrap up, Sandy. It's been a great show. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. And we will see you next week on the Butterfly Nation. I'm again...